welcome to the podcast series Talking Success, connecting the global fintech community. I'm Stacey Jafter, and today I'll be chatting with Joe Keeley, CEO and co-founder of Justify Technologies. Justify's mission is to democratize access to competitive payment processing rates and embedded fintech products. Hi, Joe. Hi, Stacey. How are you? Good. How's your day so far? Terrific. Thanks. Nice. It's morning on your end, isn't it? That's right. That's right. I love to ask my guests what their like wake up time is, what their morning routine is. I think there must be some magic in there. So what does yours look like? <laughs> well, uh, during the week, it's, you know, about quarter to 6 a.m. And I'm, uh, I, I really have one ritual that I, if I break, I, I'm, I'm in big, big trouble with, with that is okay. I, I'm in charge of making and bringing coffee to my wife. And then we, we chat for <laughs> I love that. She, she won't sit up if that doesn't happen. So when I'm traveling, <laughs> she's in a world of hurt. So I take care of that. And then we, uh, we kind of have our daily huddle in a way. Sometimes there's lots to talk about. Sometimes there's not, we have two kids that are in junior high and high school. So, um, and then sort of the day gets rolling at 6.15, and and people are getting ready for school. If it's school year, down working out and, you know, sort of we're off and running from there. Has that always been your wake up time? Was that earlier than usual? Uh, sometimes I, I, I guess, you know, I used to get up a lot earlier, but this is very painful. Wow. So, um, wow. yeah, that's about, that's about it. I mean, I, I, uh, maybe not on the weekends, but, uh, but during the week, yes. Okay. Awesome. Joe, before we go any further for the audience, just can you set the scene and tell us more about your career journey and then essentially what led you to build Justify? Sure. Sure. So, um, I've been involved in a number of different ventures, but this, but Justify is really the second material sort of growth company that I've had the pleasure of, uh, you know, leading and building the, and the first kind of put me, uh, in, you know, it was a journey where I started a a platform uh, uh, that was in the childcare space, believe it or mm-hmm. not, which is sort of makes me uniquely unqualified to run a fintech company, perhaps. But um, <laughs> I was in university as an undergrad and was a hockey player. I live in St. Paul, Minnesota, which, uh, you know, it's still very, very dark, you know, and cold in the winter mornings. But mm-hmm. I played... Uh, Played hockey in university. I got a summer job um, answering an ad that perhaps is only placed in Minnesota. And it said, you know, looking for a hockey player to watch our two boys. And I became a a manny, a nanny for the summer for two boys that were hockey players. And I became their coach, referee, chauffeur, et cetera. And, but most importantly, I think I, I really became their role model and sort of a big brother figure. Well, From that experience, I ended up starting a company called College Nannies, Sitters and Tutors, where, you know, initially we placed as a staffing company, college students that just as the name indicated were nannies, sitters and tutors. And then over time really took quite a, uh, it was a 15 year overnight success, I would say, like a lot of businesses tend to be, um, where maybe the media likes to talk about overnight success, but the reality is, you know, it takes a lot of people and a lot of time, yeah. most of the time to grow a business. So at the end of that road, um, we had turned it into a franchise company. We had built a vertical SaaS platform and a, and, and a mobile-based booking system. And we had over 10,000 employees and 200 locations wow. in the US and the UK. 
and ended up selling that to a public company, a childcare company out of uh, Boston. I stayed on for three years or so, decided not to run Europe for them, uh, which actually was a great blessing because that was months before the pandemic hit. Mm. And then um, took some time off. And then I, I uh, so that was my first sort of journey and had all aspects of the entrepreneurial journey from, you know, creation literally in a dorm room to exiting, to raising money, to, you know, all sorts of, all sorts of uh, twists and turns. And then I got um, connected with my now partners who started a very, very successful vertical SaaS company in the sports tech space. And what they found, like many vertical SaaS companies, is that um, it's really, really hard to build a billion-dollar company off of $65 a month in SaaS fees. But Mm -hmm. that one's addressable market can be expanded, you know, exponentially by providing embedded value to um, those folks that are are loyal and using the vertical SaaS companies. And that is often found, you know, at least for them was in embedded payments, insurance, lending, kind of the whole yeah. fin, fintech stack. So um, they uh, processed over $4 billion a year. Um, they lent and they sold insurance, all sorts of things to the youth sports organizations and parents, and ultimately did sell close to a billion to NBC Comcast. So uh, they looked back on that journey. And similar to mine, it first journey, it took a decade and a half. And they said, wow, um, that's, it was a really great ending, but that was really complicated and really expensive. And there must be a better and different way. So we got together and said, well, what if we created, um, you know, a white label, uh, infrastructure and team that allowed vertical SaaS companies to not have to go hire a chief payments officer and not have to hire 50, Mm -hmm. you know, fintech engineers and be able to take advantage of that. So, um, so that that's what that's why we started Justify. So you started it in the midst of COVID. Um, yeah, I mean, we're, I guess we're we're we'll be in there forever. But we started it um, just about uh, almost two years ago. Yeah. Okay. Okay. What was that experience? Because I was very early stage when COVID just hit. Was that scary to be starting a business? How was that? You know, it was a little it was kind of after the first major wave of of mm. quarantine hit. So, you know, it was it was okay. And in the beginning, virtual is just fine. But now we're, you know, we have an office and a full team and, and everyone's rolling. So, you know, sadly it was becoming kind of normal. We were getting used to that as, yeah. you know, connecting and working. But um, you know, I've always liked to think that there's never a good time and there's never a bad time to start a business. Yeah. You know, yeah, it, there's, yeah. It, there's just your time. So you sold your nanny business. How did you know it was the right time? Talking about there's never a right time. It's just your time. How did you know it was the right time for you? And what advice do you have for those in the middle of making this decision? Do they have their, do they sell off their business? Do they keep on going? Um, yeah. How did, how was that decision made for you? Well, I, I I've heard that, and I I agree with the notion, especially in, you know, early stage to growth companies, that businesses are bought, they're not sold. So 
you know, yes, when you're in sort of later stages and maybe selling from one private equity buyer to another, like that's a, you can package and hire a banker and go out and sort of run a process and somewhat control it. But I, I think that there are certain moments in which, um, exiting makes sense. And if you say no to those moments, you kind of need to enter another investment phase or period of time mm. from time to time. So, you know, it's, it's really, um, about being prepared and understanding that it, it, you, you can't always time the market and you can't always time if you yeah. have larger companies. Once, once for us, we had a very, very large vendor, um, or partner rather, where we were a vendor for them that needed our technology was using us as a partner. And they had decided it was time to bring this capability in house. And yeah. once, once a large company, once a public company gets board approval to do that, it enters in a different level of risk that one needs to consider like, okay, they're either going to do it with you or they're going to do it with someone else. So what does, what does yeah, the world exactly. look like if they do it? on their own or do it with someone else for you. So, you know, for me and, but for me, I had, uh, you know, a decade and a half is a pretty good run. So I was ready to actually begin the final chapter of that business, be able to take a sabbatical and then, you know, explore what was next and what was next turns out to be, you know, it, you know, a, uh, embedded payment and FinTech company called justify. If I was coming to you, and I was saying, listen, Joe, I have an offer. Someone wants to buy my business. What kind of things would you ask me to take into consideration before making that decision? Well, you know, I think that um, it, it, the first, I think you have to look at the, um, all the mechanics of things like, you know, do we think that this is a, a fair offer of where you are versus the mm -hmm. potential versus, you know, all the sort of, you know, business mechanics is, is a, you know, what type of business is, is it, is it in, you know, the upswing, is it in decline as an industry, like all of those sort of very academic sort of business school like things. And you can, you know, and, and those tend to be, um, you know, not as difficult because they are intellectual. But there's also the emotional side of things like depend, especially for like first time founders, you know, they talk about their business being their baby. And I think that that's, <laughs> yeah. that's both good and bad. It's good. And like they just nurture it and they and it helps fuel their success. But it can be kind of bad as well, because, you know. You, you you don't sell your baby. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> but I, I think Hopefully of it more, more like a, you know, it was ironically when I left the company, it was after, you know, 18 years because I sold after 15 and I stayed on for a few more. So for me, I took um, pride and joy in it was more like a child that I had raised and mm. sent off to university or to, you know, and they were a fully functioning, able to be on their own. Yeah. So, um, so I think really addressing the emotional side of things, and there can be a lot of uh, fear and a lot of identity baked into the business for an entrepreneur. And I think it's important to understand that um, your business is not you, you, you know, even though, mm. you know, it, that may be, uniquely tied to you. I think it's important to understand, you know, this is an, this is an asset. It might be an asset that you're very passionate about, but you know, and, and it's those, those, 
those emotional components are important all the time. They're even more important if it's, if you're, you know, if you don't have investors, you know, I was more of a, I was a majority shareholder in the, uh, in, in my first company, whereas we're, we're venture backed by a lot of, uh, you know, premier venture companies, um, firms mm-hmm. today. So, you know, we have a board and there's a lot of people around the table. Now as founder and CEO, I have, uh, you know, a job to steer us and to have my opinion is, is weighs very heavy, but you know, this is not, you know, tied. I'm not the only person that this is like my identity, but that it feels very different in a second time founding situation. Sure. You view yourself as the person working at a train station, making sure everything is running on time. What you feel you need to complement your skill set as someone who can link what the business is doing today with the vision. What does that look like? Is it taking the five-year plan and breaking it up into weekly tasks? Or what exactly was it that you needed? Well, you know, I think in... I think that there's lots of visionaries in in the world and the 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 line between sort of you know visionary and insanity is very sort of thin and I think what differentiates the two is those that can say okay here's where we're going see that you know mountain out in the future or that castle on the hill but like how do you link um what I'm doing today and tomorrow and, and with a direction of a company and a vision and, and, and fueled by a purpose. So I think in, in many respects, like I I have a dual role at, as a CEO of a, of a venture back, you know, seeds to a stage company. And that is one to, yes, to link, you know, and paint that vision and to, to make sure we're consistent with our purpose and our values and start building the building blocks on that. And, you know, at this stage of the company, I need to roll up my sleeves and take the garbage out if that's what needs to happen. So I think it's, it is a little bit of both. And I think that if you get, if that's, that's the challenge of these stages, if you get someone who's just like true, you know, very, very visionary and has, has led, you know, big, big teams, a lot of times they struggle in a small, small business because, you know, they don't have an executive assistant and they can't dial seven for IT and like, you have to just be a little (laughs) grittier, but on the flip yeah. side, you know, I've experienced that it took me a while in my sort of, I would say my informal education, which was uh, growing the company after I, I, you know, I graduated with an entrepreneurship degree, but my master's degree was in entrepreneurship too. It just happened to be a, you know, decade and a half long case study that what I've seen is that entrepreneurs that put them set themselves at the center of the universe, um, tend to be, and then everything orbits around them, tend to build really profitable, enjoyable lifestyle businesses. But that tends to be the cap in which they can grow them to. Instead of thinking it more like a, you know, an entire, you know, galaxy where you have many solar systems and each one of those solar systems is a sales leader, a product leader, an engineering leader. So my job is to really you know, um, balance, you know, acting like the company we want to be and, and we are growing towards and and what we're funding and also realizing that, well, but every day, you know, it takes everyone to, you know, roll up their sleeves and get to work. So, um, you know, because I think that if being too, 
limited on either end of the spectrum is hard at this stage. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll look forward to getting to the stage where, you know, I'm needed less to do a lot of the things. That's okay. <laughs> and don't get me wrong. Like no one's asking me to write code, but um, you know, it's it's just a stage of company. So it's important to, to, to look one stage ahead or two stages ahead, but also realize most of the time, where are you today? Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Going back to focusing on what the business is doing today for the vision, can you give some practical tips? I really love when listeners can walk away from this episode and be like, okay, that's something I know is not my strong suit. I need to become better at this. What would you say to them? Mm, you know, I think that first it's it's okay to just um, say, I don't know, or I need to, you know, I need to help. I need to get better at that. Or because I think a lot of times entrepreneurs, especially, you know, first time entrepreneurs, you know, they, they assume this, you know, CEO role, you know, it might be them and no one else. And they're the CEO and, you know, how quickly you can ascend to the title. Um, nowhere is there a title that it has such great disparate, you know, uh, ranges, but I think mm -hmm. not having all the answers is, I, I think, an important role or important position to have as a CEO. Like that doesn't mean that um, you still can't make final decisions, but I think it's very, very dangerous. And, and it's actually a detractor to growing an enduring company by thinking that you have to have all the answers. I think what you need to get really good at is having the right questions. Yeah. Yeah. And also getting the right person in the right seat is going to help you achieve that vision. And we were chatting about how challenging this can be. How do you attain this? Well, I think it's a little bit, um, I, I kind of, I, I try to run, you know, and participate at, at home, you know, as I do at work. <laughs> and that is have a few simple rules, you know, repeat them often and be consistent. So, you know, I think those few simple rules is first as a company, as it relates to talent and building a team, we need to define like, what is the seats that we need absent of any people? You know, what is the role that we need? What is for, for right now and a little bit in the future? And, and then we need to go out and find the right person for the right seat. So the first thing, focus on having the right seat, then finding the right person. Well, what is the right person? Well, they need to be able to have all the either technical skills or, you know, an experience that they that that seat you defined is. And then, and equally important, they need to align with your articulated core values. And I think that by, and not just like, I think it's 
you know, it's not about having core values that I would, you know, that are like, it's been called like permission to play core values. It's like, well, honesty, integrity, like those should just be given. Mm -mm. It's like unique core values that you can like measure against, right? Someone has a can-do attitude or they don't have a can-do attitude. Like, yeah, it it doesn't mean that we're only going to have a team of like go-getting salespeople. Like engineers can have a can-do attitude or not have a can-do attitude. So identifying those core values so that then you have the right person for the right seat. So we have a value in our business called JDFI, just freaking do it, which is (laughs) kind of just saying that if you have an idea, go out, like explore it, take initiative, right? And we also are a startup or a small business. We wear multiple hats. Running the podcast isn't my primary job at all, but that's just what we do in our business. You you just say yes, you go out and you do it. And when we're interviewing people, this is something we really want to find. Like, are you going to say yes to, we have an event going on. Are you going to help plan this event? You're, let's say in finance, but that's not your job. Are you going to still help and say, yes, put your hand up? And every single time you ask this question at an interview, everyone's like, yes, of course, I have a can-do attitude. So then how do you yourself ask the right questions to get these answers? Well, first of all, um, I'm not perfect at it. So let's, let's first, you know, perfection is not in the hiring game. You know, we're talking about, you know, curious, um, a curious thing to hire human beings, which are, which are changing creatures, you know, that, you know, people change and they have good days and they have bad days. So we're not looking for perfection, but what we're looking to accomplish, I think, is if you can beat the average and, you know, the bad news or the good news is, is that, you know, the hiring average is actually kind of terrible out there. So if you can be, you know, if you can start moving up to be, have find A players or, or, or really good fits, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80% of the time, like you're really doing a great job. So I think it's, it's less about asking these questions like, would you do this? Or, you know, Mm-mm-mm. tell me about this situation. You know, how would you react? Because, those are the, those are, that's what we do in interviews. You know, everyone knows how to answer the questions the way the teacher wants them to be answered. Instead, I think it's one's past, past experience is the greatest indication of future results. So let's talk about, um, you know, tell me about a time, you know, that, that, in in this particular, and you can even, and someone says, well, I'm hiring a bunch of junior people. It's like, well, they may not have experience in the working world, but they have experience in school clubs and sports and, and Mm -hmm. whatever it happens to be. So, you know, it's really about unpacking what are the behaviors and patterns that are very likely to continue and how does that apply? Yeah. Over the last few years, you focused on understanding and cracking the code on how to make the dream work. Tell me more about this philosophy. You know, I I think that, you know, there's vision without, you know, traction is hallucination, you know, that, (laughs) and, and, (laughs) and I think that for me, I really, it goes back to, you know, having a, a, 
a big grand vision, yes, but one that the math works. It's amazing how many, you know, in our in our nanny business, how many franchises that we would talk to and you know their one year plan is to be a million in revenue and their two year plan is to bill to be a million and a half in revenue and their and and their five year plan is to be you know 50 million in revenue and I would look at that and say okay like is there a rich uncle that is going to give you a bunch <laughs> of capital that I'm unaware of like it's just about making making the math work so um and not in like a micromanagement sort of way but just taking the time to, you know, operationally link and make sure that the math works. And I think that we see that a lot. You know, we work with vertical SaaS platforms and help them basically make more money with us than in what they could do on their own or piecing together point solutions. And what I see time and time again is the, you know, infinite sort of, well, it's on our roadmap. Oh yeah, we're going to, we're going to embed, you know, we're going to optimize our payments or we're going to bring in insurance or we're going to bring in in lending or we're going to do that. You know, it's, 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 it's somewhere out beyond six months on our roadmap. And what I found is that, um, someday often never comes. And, Mm. you know, it's easy to have these sort of important, but not urgent, uh, things. So, and, and, and I understand that. I mean, when we were running the franchise business, we had both our product, our tech product, we had our you know service and brand to consider. And then we had, we were in the franchise business, which was helping entrepreneurs build a business. So we were in, we kind of had this multi-headed monster. And I think vertical SaaS platforms have the same thing going on. They need to focus on their product and their existing customers. They're passionate about whatever vertical they're in, you know, barbershop software or sports tech software or logistics software. But this idea of embedding, you know, fintech and payments and getting really good at that is super overwhelming and daunting because it's a completely different business. You know, most technicians or technologists got into a vertical because they had experience or were passionate about that, not because they were experts at, you know, this abstract world that is interchange. So we like to be truly, one of our values is to be a committed partner. And, and that, that really means something to us because we think, you know, candidly like the the fintech industry and payments specifically doesn't have a great reputation it sort of has this curiously deliberate shroud of secrecy around like there's only one other industry that you don't actually know what something's going to cost you until it's done and that's healthcare at least in the united states and frankly, there isn't a lot of people that are putting that on the pedestal as the way to do healthcare. So yeah. we think being a partner to these platforms and helping them figure it out, helping them win is, you know, what being a committed partner looks like. I love that. Joe, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Where's the best place for listeners to reach you if they have any questions? So uh, justify.ai, that's... Uh, J-U-S-T-I-F-I and uh, myself, I'm on LinkedIn. Awesome. Thanks again. Thanks so much. Be well. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Talking Success, Connecting the Global Fintech Community. Feel free to follow us on LinkedIn at Talent in the Cloud. And if you're interested in exec talent, expanding your team, or you yourself are looking for a new exciting change in your career, check out our website, talentinthecloud.io.